please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel, um, be in chapter 21, 2 Samuel 21, and also 2 Samuel 24, which is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at both places. This morning, we are entering the final section of 2 Samuel and the life of David. Now, many scholars consider the last three chapters to be the epilogue of David's life. So bear with me as we try to wrap this up in about two more weeks. Now, let me say as we begin, I know for many of you that this series has been long and challenging. It's been long and challenging for me. Okay, I've never studied and have never read the life of David as closely as I have since we began this series. And I've also never had to wrestle with as many of the complexities that this series has brought to the forefront regarding God's covenant, God's judgment, God's grace, and God's kingdom. And all of those things, of course, foreshadow Jesus and His coming kingdom. Now let me say this. Though all of this is challenging, it is absolutely good for you, and it's good for me. It's like a strict diet or exercise program. It might be tough in the middle of it, and you might many times want to check out or quit or eat a smoothie or go to Dairy Queen. You might many times want to quit, but listen, the results are worth the struggle. The results are worth the struggle. And here are the results that I'm looking for as we go through something that's difficult like this. Number one, I'm looking for you to have a deeper appreciation of biblical history and accuracy. I hope you have that now that we've studied this so in-depthly. Second, I want you to have a greater desire to read your Bibles more carefully and more closely. That's a good. Number three. I want you to have a better understanding of the big picture of the scriptures as all of the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus. And fourth, fourth, said that weirdly, I want us all to have a greater humility in regards to dealing with difficult texts. Okay, listen, people on one side will say, Pastor, you need to skip difficult texts. And people on the other side will say, well, you can't preach if you're not scared to say hard things. Well, how do I make both of y'all happy? I can't. I have to just preach the word. This is what the Bible says. Okay? Listen, all of the Bible isn't easy, but all of the Bible is still God's word. It is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. And finally, I want you to have a greater love for Christ and the gospel. That's ultimately what it's about. So, that's what's going on as we finish up a very hard series. Now, I will say this as well. This is exactly, by the way, how Paul instructs us to read the Bible in Romans 15. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Instruction, endurance, encouragement, hope. It has to go in that order. You don't get hope without the instruction and the endurance. And you've had some for five or six months now. Endurance. All right. Now, back to the epilogue of 2 Samuel in in chapters 21 through 24. Now, in these last three chapters, there are six carefully selected snapshots of David's reign. They're gathered here for us as the reader. Now, these snapshots are not chronological, okay? 
They are chosen for a reason. They're chosen for us to view all of David's reign, especially in regards to his relationship to the Lord and Israel as God's people. They are arranged for you literary buffs. They are arranged in a literary structure called a chiasm. That means an X. Okay? That, that's the literary structure that they're found in. Okay? They form a cross where basically at the ends of the X, at the ends of the X, that's episodes 1 and 6, they go together, and then 2 and 5 go together, and they get closer to the climax, which is chapters, which are episodes 3 and 4, in the middle where the lines cross. Now, Hebrew literature sometimes drives people crazy, because where do we want the climax of all of our stories? At the end. We want it to say, and everyone lived happily ever after the end. But that's not how Hebrews think. They put the climax in the middle, and they build from the outsides in. Okay, so today, for us to get this in the right order, we have to look at episodes 1 and 6, and then next week, episodes 2 and 5, and then at the very middle, episodes 3 and 4, to get the climax in the right, off, in the right order. So don't, take that up, don't, don't, don't make that a problem for me. That's how the Hebrews think. Take it up with them, Okay. I, like all, West, all American Western thinkers, want it at the end like it should be, okay? So, for us to understand those, we're going to take, take episodes 1 and 6 together, okay? Now, to save time, that's where it's a good place for in, amen, okay? Now, to save time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize episodes 1 and 6 for you, and then I'll pull out the truths at, at when we get to the end, because it's a long text. Now, as I do this, here is a big caveat. I will not be able to cover every connection or answer every problem raised in these texts. You can spend time this afternoon and this week thinking through all of those items. But both of these texts, chapter 21 and chapter 24, they involve David dealing with a national crisis. A national crisis that is specifically brought on by sin that has invited God's judgment. So let's begin with a summary of 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14. You read along with me as I summarize it. And this first episode deals with Saul's previous disobedience. Saul, the previous king before David. The text tells us in chapter 21 that there were three years of famine in the land. And David sought the Lord to see why the famine was there. Now this would have happened sometime right after David had conquered Jerusalem earlier in 2 Samuel and moved the capital city there from Hebron. God told David specifically that this famine is due to Saul putting to death the Gibeonites, quote, in his zeal for the people of Israel. Now, David approached the Gibeonites, the remaining Gibeonites that remained, in order to find a way to make atonement for this sin. And what they do is they request seven sons or seven remaining heirs of Saul to be executed for, their, for this crime of breaking God's covenant. So David agrees and provides seven remaining heirs of Saul to the Gibeonites. Now, this text says that the Gibeonites, quote, hung them before the Lord at Gibeah, which was Saul's hometown. After this, God responds by ending the drought and famine and sending rain on the land. 
Now go to the sixth episode in chapter 24. So flip over to the very end, chapter 24, where David decides there, like I said, one and six are connected thematically. All right, in the sixth episode, David here decides at some point in his reign to take a census of all the fighting men in Israel. We aren't told exactly when, but it most likely happened late in his 40-year reign. And here, Joab protests. Joab says to King David, hey, it's not a good idea to do this. Let the Lord do what he wants with our fighting men. You know, after all, he's the one who fights our battles. Not a good idea. It's one of the few times that Joab is absolutely right. But David prevailed, and Joab went throughout the land, and he counted 800,000 men of Israel able to fight, and 500,000 men of Judah. That's 1.3 million fighting men, for those that can count. And it is at this point that David's conscience seizes him, and he realizes he has sinned before the Lord greatly, nationally, epically. All right? The Lord sends word to David through Gad the prophet that David will this time be allowed to choose his consequences. He has three choices, and they all involve three. He can have three years of famine. Three years of famine. He's, he experienced that earlier, right? He can have three months of fleeing before his en enemies on the battlefield. Three, months of uh, three years of famine, three months of running from the Philistines, or three days of pestilence and plague from the hand of the Lord. David chooses three days of pestilence. And after three days, 70,000 men are dead. We're told that the angel of the Lord was standing at the threshing floor of Arona, which is on Mount Moriah, where Solomon's temple will eventually be built. And the angel was reaching out his hand to strike Jerusalem when God relented from the disaster. Though the plague stops there, God's wrath has not been dealt with. So God instructs David to build an altar before the Lord so that his wrath would be propitiated or satisfied. David goes to Aruna, Arona to buy the threshing floor so that he can make atonement for his sin and for the sin of all Israel. And Arona attempts to give the land and the animals uh, for the sacrifice to David. And he says basically, David, take it all, do whatever you need to do, may the Lord accept you. And David responds to Arona, who tries to give him the property and the animals. He says, quote, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David buys the land and the oxen and sacrifices them before the Lord. And the sixth episode and the first episode end with the same sentence. Look at that last sentence. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. Look at the, first, look at the last sentence. of, of Look at back at 21, verse 14. And look at 24, verse, um, uh, the, the last verse of chapter 24. After that, God responded to the plea of the land. So those are the two episodes... They're incredibly linked when you take them together, and here are my main teaching points. What do these two episodes teach us today, this morning? Here they are. Number one, this is the big overarching truth. Sin brings divine judgment. That's what this teaches us. And the first episode is the sin of Saul. He defames the name of God 
by breaking a covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites back in the days of Joshua when they are conquering the land. If you remember the story, um, Joshua is fighting the inhabitants of the land and driving them out, and everybody gets word of this, and the Gibeonites pretend to come from a faraway land and they dress in shabby clothing and they have moldy, crumbly bread and they come before Joshua and they say to Joshua, we want to make peace. We live far, far away. We've come on a long journey. Our bread was fresh baked and warm in our hands when we put it in our knapsacks. And Joshua didn't inquire of the Lord. Instead, he took them at their word and he made a covenant before them, before the Lord, that Israel would make peace with them and not drive them out of the land. So the Gibeonites are supposed to be under the covenant protection of King Saul. But what Saul does in his zeal is he goes and murders those that are under the protection of God's divine name. This is breaking the, the ten, the, one of the Ten Commandments of taking the Lord's name in vain. We place the Lord's name on them, and now we destroy them in God's name. It's sin. God is crystal clear that this issue is what brought three years of famine. Now let me say, not every famine and drought is divine judgment. But in this case, it is. Because God tells us that it is specifically. And by the way, God telling them is incredibly gracious. God didn't have to tell them what the problem was, but God graciously tells them what the problem is so they can rectify it. And in the second episode, though, it's not Saul who creates a national crisis, it's David. David, bring, David it is the sin of David that brings God's judgment. Now, we aren't exactly told precisely what's going on in the text, only that what David does is sinful, like him ha- having this census is sinful. What's absolutely clear is that God's wrath and judgment are coming on David. Now, what's important to the author is not exactly precisely spelled out, but only the truth that God's wrath is coming. So for Saul, it's murderous murderous zeal. And for David, it seems to be his sinful presumption on the power of people to protect Israel as opposed to the promised protection of God. Does it matter how many fighting men Israel has if God fights their battles? I think this is why David learned that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Okay, but here, this is a presumptuous sin that David commits. So Saul's sin brings a three-year famine that endangers literally millions of people. All of the land of Israel is in danger because of Saul. And David's sin brings a plague that puts all of the people in danger and kills 70,000 people. Sin brings judgment. Sin brings death. It is one of the clearest teachings of the entire Bible. Front to back, you need to understand that sin doesn't bring God's blessing. It doesn't bring God's favor. It doesn't bring God's peace, but God's curse, God's judgment, and God's wrath. It is a it is, the only theolo- it is the only practical theology I can give you of the whole Bible. It's as practical as potatoes. Sin brings judgment. Front to back in the Bible. Second, the second truth that stands out in this text is that atonement is necessary and horrific. Atonement is necessary and it is horrific. In the first episode... It is the blood guilt of Saul that must be atoned for. 
Saul as king, hear me, this is why this is a national issue. Saul as king was the national representative of Israel. He was God's king. So this wasn't simply one man's sin, but a nation's sin in breaking a national covenant. When Saul broke God's covenant with Gibeon, which was made by cutting an animal in half and walking between the two halves, the offending party was promising that if I break this covenant, the same fate should come to me. Just as this animal was cut in half and killed to make this covenant, if I break it, treat me like this animal. That's how covenants are made. It's a bloody, messy mess. With Saul dead... Saul's sons served as representatives and substitutes for the Gibeonites who had been slaughtered. Now listen, Saul's sons are not human sacrifices, which was forbidden by the Lord. They were executed in Saul's place for criminally breaking God's covenant and murdering the Gibeonites. Now that is a hard text, guys and ladies. It strikes our Western sensibilities as brutal and horrifying. Take Saul's descendants who did not make this decision and put them to death before the Lord in Gibeah, Saul's hometown. In the second episode, David had to slice the throats of animals and pour their blood on an altar as a substitute for sins. The priest, by the way, in the Old Testament did this millions of times in Israel's history. Millions of animals died. Atonement is a messy and bloody and brutal business, and it is a necessary business. It was God himself who slaughtered the first animal in the Garden of Eden to show the seriousness of Adam and Eve's rebellion when he clothed them with animal skins, when they thought fig leaves would do the job. And it is God who provided a lamb for Abraham in the place of his son Isaac on the very mountain where David is standing at this moment. And it was God who said himself that the blood of bulls and goats would never take away sins. And, hear me, it was God who sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was Jesus who said that I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the precise reason that Christ had to die. God did not send an angel God sent His Son in human flesh to die for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now listen to me. We just sang beautiful songs about the cross and what it means, and all of that is right and true. But let me tell you as honestly as I can say it, you shouldn't have cute and fuzzy feelings about Christ's atonement for us. It's not cute. It's not fuzzy. It's not a feel-good story. It was bloody, and it was brutal, and it was horrific, and it was absolutely necessary for you and I to be saved. Listen, if you want to know how how holy God is, and how serious God takes sin... Look at the cross of Jesus. If you want to know how ugly and horrific your sin actually is before God's holiness, look at the cross. Sin must be a horrible thing to require no less a sacrifice than the Son of God in the flesh. It's not cute, funny. You don't play with this stuff. It's bloody and it is horrible. 
and it is terrifying. Listen, this text, both of these texts here in David, episode 1 and episode 6, they are meant to shock us and make us contemplate the horror of atonement. So much so that if you were reading through that first episode, I skipped this part, did you notice that there is a grieving and mourning mother who is out beside her sons hanging on these on these impaled on these stakes outside of Gibeah, and she's out there day and night without sleeping, beating the birds off of the, off of the corpses and shooing the beasts from devouring the rain, uh, devouring the, the sons, the lifeless son, the lifeless bodies of her sons, as the rain falls and the drought ends, and the blood guilt of Saul is removed. I don't know how to say it any other way. Sometimes you can't make a practical, a practical point of application. All you can say is that atonement is horrible, and it is bloody, but it's necessary. And the third truth, God's covenant mercy is our only hope. God's covenant mercy is our only hope. Did you notice that this truth rings out of both episodes? You can see it clearly in the first episode. I didn't say it earlier, but did you know when the Gibeonites requested seven descendants of Saul, there is a line in there that says that David spared Mephibosheth from the Gibeonites. Listen, Mephibosheth, remember, is one of Saul's remaining heirs, and David shields him from the Gibeonites. And in this way, David spares him twice. David spares Mephibosheth twice. It says in chapter 7, I'm sorry, in verse 7 of chapter 21, quote, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son, of, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the covenant of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Listen, Saul's other descendants are killed because of covenant breaking. Right? Saul's sons are killed because they broke the covenant with the Gibeonites. Why is Mephibosheth saved? Because of covenant making. Hear me, do you not see the picture? David had sworn an oath to Jonathan before the Lord to protect his family. So look at the picture. The first covenant is broken and it requires Mephibosheth's life. And instead, there is a second covenant that supersedes it and David spares him. Oh, I could spend the rest of my time waxing eloquent on how this looks just like an old and new covenant in the Bible. We're all covenant breakers deserving of death, but there's a second covenant that saves us, spares us, and that's good news. That's a covenant of grace and mercy. But you can also see the cov- you can also see covenant and mercy, uh, covenant grace and mercy in the second episode. First, you see it in how David chooses to throw himself on the mercy of God. David doesn't choose three years of famine or three months of fleeing before the Philistines. No, look what he says in verse 14 of chapter 24. He says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. David chooses this because he knows that God is truly merciful. He would rather fall on the covenant mercy of God than into the hands of sinful men. He knew the covenant promises of the Old Testament where God says in Deuteronomy, Know therefore that the Lord God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Let me stand with Him. 
Second, we see it. Second, we see God's mercy in the second episode when God stops his angel from destroying Jerusalem. Notice that David doesn't stop the plague in chapter 24, but God himself does in his mercy. It says in verse 16, look there, verse 16 of chapter 24. Get this. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. Get the picture. The angel standing above Jerusalem on Mount Moriah at Arana's threshing floor. His hand is about to destroy Jerusalem with a plague. And God says this. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, look what God says to him. It is enough. Stay your hand. Spare my people. It is enough. Stay your hand. Spare my people. Jerusalem and the Davidic family are spared due to God's mercy and covenant. God remembers mercy in the midst of judgment. God remembers mercy even in the midst of judgment. Listen, this truth is found all over the Old Testament and it is our only hope. Listen to Joel 2. Listen to how Joel, all this covenant language. Joel 2 says, return to the Lord your God. So repent, come back to God. You're under his judgment. Repent and come back. Listen to what he says. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing. You see, this truth of God, that he remembers mercy and grace even in judgment, that's what led Jonah to run away from God to Tarshish. Remember, God sends Jonah to Nineveh to preach for them to repent, and God, no, no, uh, Jonah runs away. Well, why does Jonah run away? It's because he doesn't want God to relent. He wants God to destroy Nineveh, his enemies. And listen to what God, listen to what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, after God spares them, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And guys, what, what Jonah was absolutely right about, and, and it, ter- it, it made him want to run from God, that's the, very thing that, that's the very reason we should run to the Lord. That's the very reason we should run to Him. Because He relents over disaster. Now listen, let me conclude here. That truth is our only hope. Our only hope is the covenant, grace, and mercy of God. There is no other hope. We have nowhere else to turn. It was Israel's only hope in the drought that was brought about by Saul's sin. It was, it was the only hope that David had that had brought pestilence and plague. And it is our only hope today. Hear me. Sin brings judgment. And we're all sinners. That's the bad news. We, all, we will all stand before God before, for our own sin. And His judgment will fall. But the good news of the gospel is that atonement has been made. And it was bloody. And it was brutal. 
And it was horrific. And it was absolutely necessary. As Jesus willingly went to the cross to take our sin and shame upon, our, upon himself and to die in our place. The Bible says that Christ died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And there is no other way for sinful human beings to be made right with God. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other way. Though anyone who comes to the Father must come through me. There is no other sacrifice or atonement. There is no one else who can bring us to God or who can restore our relationship that was broken by sin. There is no one else who can take God's wrath and judgment that we have earned and provide the righteousness that we need. And he is the only one that by his death and resurrection has given us a new covenant. A covenant of protection that shields us from the demands and curse of the old covenant. We are all guilty of breaking God's covenant. And the Bible says if you've broken one of God's law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. All of them. All 613 commandments in the Old Testament. The good news of the gospel is that all who come to Jesus are brought into mercy and grace by faith alone. We have hope through the gospel. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. We're going to have a brief time of invitation after I pray. It's very simple. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the covenant mercy of Jesus, repent and believe today. If you need to just repent of sins and come like David and just say, Lord, I need, to, I need to lay my life here and lay my life down on the altar here as a living sacrifice, you do that. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours as we pray. Father, would you now speak to our hearts, Lord, as we've heard your word. And Father, may you exalt your son Jesus in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.